The purpose of the checklist is not to make better papers. The purpose of the checklist is to train better writers. Hello, and welcome to the Arts of Language podcast with Andrew Poudois, founder of the Institute for Excellence in Writing, or as many like to say, IEW. My name is Julie Walker, and I'm honored to serve Andrew and IEW as the Director of Marketing. Our goal here is to equip teachers and teaching parents with methods and materials which will aid them in training their students to become confident and competent communicators and thinkers. Hi everyone, this week we're going to switch it up a bit and play for you the audio portion of one of our IEW webinars. Because the webinar itself is over an hour, we're splitting it into two parts, but we'll post both of them this week. And we'll post any links or websites mentioned in this recording at IEW.com podcast. Enjoy! Well, good evening, Andrew Pudewa here hailing from our headquarters in eastern Oklahoma and happy to see many of you from all over the place joining in our webinar. This is one of our monthly update webinars try to help you move through the structure and style syllabus smoothly and have as much success as possible. This is January and what we generally do is one webinar with each unit once per month but since we kind of bundled together December and January into one month and talk about Unit 5, we have a bonus, and that would be an update on selling through style. So tonight we're going to talk about the dress-ups and the openers, the decorations, the triples, and advanced techniques, and anything else that you might have a question about. So... We are talking about the stylistic techniques. If you have the old teaching writing structure and style seminar workbook, which you would see on the left, that was our flagship product for almost 15 years, pages 15 to 23. If you have, hopefully, the new teaching writing structure and style 2 course, which was done in November a year and a half ago, that's on page 169. If you don't know about the new edition, if you didn't for some reason get word about the upgrade option, you can click the link at the bottom there and read a little bit about why that upgrade is such a fantastic deal for you. One of the things that you know I think is very helpful for people to understand is the difference in the teaching nature, the teaching methodology between the structural models and the stylistic techniques. The structural models are somewhat cyclical in that what we recommend is that you teach Unit 1 and 2 in September, Unit 3 in October, Unit 4 in November, Unit 5 in December and January, 6 February, 7 March, 8 April, 9 May, like that. And then the next year, you go through all nine units again only you're using different source text, different stories, different pictures, different subjects for research, etc. But you work through all nine units again. And then the third year, you work through all nine units 
again, and maybe even a fourth year, so that the students are deeply internalizing those structural models, but you're not getting stuck in one unit. That can be a, a point of failure for some people. You know, I'll have people come up to me and say, well, we started your writing program in the fall, and it was going really well for a while, but now it's not going so, so well. And my first question, of course, is what unit are you on? You know, this could be March or April. <laughs> and if they say, what do you mean? Then I know the problem is they got stuck, stuck at unit two or unit three, and they didn't get that sense of moving through the units. You don't have to master them. You give students as much help as needed, but you want to you want to get through those units. Next year, come through, go through all nine again. It'll be easier. Next year, go through the nine units again, and it gets easier each year. Now, the stylistic techniques are a little different in that they're kind of linear. You teach one, you practice it till it's easy. You add another one and do that until it's easy. You add another one, etc., etc., and you build up then cumulatively a list of stylistic techniques that you know and can do with relative ease, and you just keep going. So the stylistic techniques are not locked to the structural models in any way. So with the structural models, you're going through those units more than once. And as you go through it in later years, you can provide revision and expansion. With the stylistic techniques, you move into these next step, next step, next step. And you don't go faster than mastery allows. One of our core principles is this formula, EZ plus 1. And that is that you don't want to teach a new stylistic technique until what you have already taught has become easy. And we'll talk about the definition of that a little bit later. Here we see the overview of the structural models, Unit 1 and 2, writing from notes, 3, retelling narrative stories in October, summarizing a reference, writing from pictures, December, January, February, summarizing multiple references. So that'll be our review webinar for next month. And then inventive, what we used to call creative, but inventive writing in March, formal essay in April, and if you're still alive in May, the uh, formal critiques. So those structural models, like I said, you march through all nine of them over the course of the school year, and then repeat that process two or three or four years in a row. The stylistic techniques, and I love this little graphic because it, it, uh, if it shows up right, these techniques kind of bounce in on you. And so they're dripped in as they become easy. What does easy mean? It means that they can do it without much help, and it doesn't sound too goofy most of the time. So this is a possible schedule for dripping in stylistic techniques, probably with an older student where in Unit 2, you can work with the ly, who, which, and strong verb. Unit 3, you add the because quality adjective. By Unit 4, you can get the sixth of the basic dress-ups and maybe a prepositional sentence opener. Unit 5, a couple more sentence openers. Unit 6, the last couple. Uh, and then maybe you have time to drop in a decoration or two, simile, quote, whatever. And so that's one kind of particular speed.
a different type of speed for slower, younger, or less experienced students might look something like this. You're, you're taking four or five units just to introduce all six of the dress-up techniques, and you've got number two and three, maybe alliteration or something, but you're following the easy plus one rule. And with younger students, honestly, you could go even slower than that. If you found that they needed help and still needed coaching and didn't quite make it smooth, you could go even slower than this, and that would be fine. It's actually better to err on the side of being too slow than to overwhelm the students and have them be frustrated. With older students, older high school or college students, you can probably go a bit faster than that first model. And here you see a method of, or kind of a pacing of getting through all the stylistic techniques over the course of one cycle of nine units. Then, okay, you may take a break for the summer and you may have to drop back a few notches and be sure that's still easy, but you're able to go much faster and have a fairly extensive checklist practiced. And so that's, that's kind of another example of a pacing model. One thing I always like to stress with parents in the home Teachers are much in the classroom are much more inclined to do this, although sometimes there's restrictions on that as well. But one of the things, you know, our tradition, we come from Mrs. Ingham, who founded the Blended Sound Sight Program of Learning. So her idea is if you show students something, you want to create an audio reinforcement of that, auditory reinforcement. If you tell them something, you want to create a visual reinforcement. And anytime you can get a kinesthetic element in there, that's good as well. So in our teaching writing system, we're strongly encouraging to use the walls. This picture is probably not a typical homeschool classroom or room with a, a family of many children. So my advice is if you're homeschooling in particular, just give up on the Martha Stewart approach to the home. Instead, make those walls a living resource. In fact, we had many posters, maps, and a very large whiteboard in the dining room. I mean, we had a homeschool room that was dedicated, but nobody ever used that homeschool room. They were always at the dining table, and the homeschool room became mom's junk room. So I finally said, let's just put the whiteboard in the place where people are. <laughs> and it was much better that way. But it wasn't a Martha Stewart style. I see uh, we're anticipating, <laughs> Leanne is anticipating our uh, next question, and that is, where do you get the posters and signs? Well, one option is to make your own posters and signs. That was the old school when Mrs. Ingham and Shirley and Burton all first started teaching this program in the 70s in northern Alberta. Basically, people just created their own materials with felt markers and construction paper and poster board and yardsticks and rulers. So that's kind of the old school. People didn't have things like even you know laser printers that they could make nice things with. And, and in a way, that was 
just as good, if not better, because you put your whole, you know, you put your heart into it, and that's lovely. However, some people prefer posters, so you can either make your own or you can buy the ones that we have made. Same thing with the portable walls idea. This was a this was a concept that came to me. I was in Rockland, California, working with the Rockland School District, and I had been doing teacher training for the day, and I had pointed out, put posters on the wall, get your LY word list, get your prepositions, get your synonyms for banned words, get your models, use the walls as a living resource. And then I was informed that the fire marshal of Sacramento County had created a policy or some kind of regulation that allowed, get this, it allowed teachers in schools to only cover 25% of their wall space with paper. And I couldn't believe it. I was incensed. I, my immediate thought is this guy should be, you know, sentenced to teach grade four for a year with no one helping him just go in and survive. It's unreasonable. Then I learned that you could cover more of your walls, 25%, if you bought this very expensive fireproof paper. At which point I really got irritated because I thought, well, it's not impossible. It is possible that the fire marshal actually owns stock in the company that produces the fireproof paper. <laughs> anyway, so I went to the hotel that night. I went to the store first, bought a few file folders, went to the hotel, and I pasted two file folders together. I wrote a bunch of word lists and and uh, created this sample portable walls, brought it into the teachers and say, here, make this. If you know, if the kids can't go to the walls, the walls can come to the students. So I thought it was a great idea, but again, people are, are not so much into hand making the materials uh, anymore. So that's why we sell, and you can click this link at the bottom here if you're curious, that's why we sell our standard made portable walls but it's a great reference in fact you see at conventions adults will come and pick the thing up and say "Ooh, I want this for myself this is going to be really helpful we have a new product and that is specifically some portable walls for the SAS that would be for older students who are learning to write 5 to 20 some paragraph papers needing the different structures to organize and then some of the details about content. So these portable walls for the essayist is a new product. We're very happy about that and has lots of good general tips as well. Another place where we have very easy to access information, again, if it won't, if the students can't go to the information, the information come to the students, and that would be our IEW writing tools, smartphone apps. We have on all platforms, and this can be very helpful, you know, especially uh, for kids who already have like an iPad or uh, something they're using. They can quickly navigate the word lists, and of course, all kids today are are very very tech savvy, so that might be uh, a way to go. 
and uh, you'd enjoy particularly the expanded version you see a page of that the cheerful clownfish is a page from a book that we published called a word right now which is a magnificent thesaurus only the words rather than arranged strictly by synonym are actually arranged into thematic category so words you know for courageous would all be together uh, or in this case cheerfulness and they're also divided into parts of speech so there's a long list of ly adverbs there's a list of verbs strong verbs lists of good quality adjectives that help organize the parts of speech the descriptor the students want that's kind of guaranteed to work because they're thematically organized so you might enjoy either that book word right now or the cheaper portable version of it on the iPad or iPhone. All right, just to go over the dress-ups, and I don't need to belabor this because we know I know that most of you have seen this before. You've uh, probably been teaching it for years, some of you. And so I'll just zip through. One thing we tried to do in the teaching, writing, structure, and style, and then subsequent published material was to kind of create a consistency in the order of teaching, of introducing techniques. So then we go to the who, which clause, the adjective clause. Then we go uh, back to a strong verb. And the best way, of course, to introduce the strong verb is to help the students understand, you know, what is a verb, as well as what are some weak, lame, lousy verbs, like see or saw, go went, think, thought, want and work with band words. We'll show that a little bit later. Then we go to the because clause, which, as you note from this slide, eventually will be dropped when we get to the uh, clausal openers in the sentence opener section. Quality adjectives, again, looking at kind of the weak, lame, lousy adjectives is best helpful. And then the clausal dress-up, affectionately called by some the www.asia. It is almost harder to say than when, while, where, as, since, if, although. But what we do is have the students just memorize when, while, where, since, as, if, although. Also, you can put it on the poster on the wall so that those words are constantly kind of in their mind and they'll try to use one of those in a sentence of a composition they're writing. And it may turn out to be a fragment. They may or may not do it appropriately. But if they try it, then the teacher can you know, refine it and say, here's the right or better, smoother way to do this. You'll notice here that we chose this order because it kind of alternates between word choice and sentence structure. So ly adverb, that's a word choice. You know, so you choose a word, put it in. Hopefully, it adds to the effect. The who, which clause is more of a grammatical structure. It's saying put in the word who or which, which most of the time will create a noun clause, and then see if that sentence is ordered properly around that clause and working with that sentence structure. Then we go to number three is the strong verb. Now we're back in the vocabulary development side, and so you've got opportunity for that for a while. When you add in the fourth dress-up technique, 
Now you're back into a structural idea because clause, which is a subordinating conjunction, some people believe. And the word because then forces them to add in some information, add in more detail, look at why something is the way it is, look for causal relationships. I'd probably be the first to say that, that forcing that into every paragraph can create awkwardness. But at the same time, forcing students to use it forces them to do a little bit of thinking that they're perhaps not used to. So that's, it's not a bad thing. And again, we don't worry too much that whatever the students are doing, you know, that something this, the students have done you know, sounds bad. Awkwardness is par for the course. We want to continue to model. Oh, here'd be a better way to say what you're trying to say like that. Then we go to adjectives, so we're back on the word. So it's vocabulary, clause, vocabulary, clause, vocabulary. And yes, as you could have predicted, the clause finishes up the set of the six basic dress-ups. The difference here is that the who, which clause almost always creates an adjective clause, whereas the when, while, where, essence of although generally creates a teachable, more malleable sentence. So you have lots of opportunities to use to use those. So you teach one dress up, you uh, do it till it's easy, you add in the next, you do that until it's easy, you add in the next, you do that until it's easy, and ultimately you've got all six dress ups in every paragraph of every composition. And that is not an unachievable goal. You do, however, as I said, have to be sure not to rush it. So I mentioned the order, the minimum rule, and this is stated in the seminar workbook, each one in every paragraph. So every one you've learned in every paragraph you write. And then the indicator is to underline one of each in every paragraph. Some people misunderstand this, and they will have their students underline every single ly, every single strong verb, every single quality adjective, every single clause. And that's just very often going to be too many underlines to deal with. And you might look and see five underlines, but you don't know. Is it the five techniques that we're trying to do? Or did they do the same technique four times and underline it each time? So helping the kids sort through and understand this indicator system is going to be a tremendous blessing later on, uh, both to you and to them, because they will more quickly see, OK, I've got the four I need. Uh, what are the two that I don't need? Where can I find those? And put the pieces together. We wanted to get the president on here to be dressed up and be the model for style. but. We couldn't, so we had to settle for a lesser style, gentlemen's quarterly. But nevertheless, the idea of dress up makes sense to kids because they can play. You know, they can have play clothes, they can have a costume for a for Halloween or a party, and then they can dress up for church or a wedding or something like that. One good kind of idea to always keep in the back of your mind is if your students are complaining, whining, arguing claiming that the checklist is too long or too complicated, then it probably is. And what they're 
basically saying to you is you taught too much too fast. So don't. Back up and teach a little bit. Work with it until it is. What's the keyword there? Easy, correct? And then move forward. Some people say, how do you know if it doesn't sound too goofy most of the time? Well, you do have to be the judge. But what I've found is that students learn better sometimes by trying different word choices, trying different sentence structures, trying to make it work, maybe succeeding, maybe failing. But in that trying effort, they grow. They start to understand. And it works much better than the you know, approach of, here, I'm going to micromanage and tell you exactly what to do with every word there in your sentence. So it's a good balanced place to be. We also talk a little bit about grammar. And when you're talking about the dress-ups, it can be a little bit challenging for students. I would say the, one of the most common questions I get when I'm, you know, after I've taught the lesson, I'm kind of running around the room helping people, looking over their shoulder, answering questions. One of the most common questions I get is, is this a verb or is this an adjective? What happens is they write down a word. They know it's a good word, but they're having a hard time parsing the sentence and figuring out what part of speech it is. And so it's kind of tough. One of the th challenges in teaching English grammar is that we don't have an inflected language like uh, Latin or, say, Japanese, where the words change according to how they're used. So in many languages, you look at a word, can be completely out of context, but you look at it and you say, well, that's a verb. It has to be a verb. couldn't be anything other than a verb. It has verb endings. It's verbish. In English, you really can't do that. You could take a word like golf, for example, and you could say, what part of speech is it? Well, it could be it could be almost anything. You can't know unless you can parse the sentence and see how it's used. Golf could be a noun. Golf is fun. Golf could be a verb. We golf every week. Golf could also be an adjective. Please climb in the golf cart. So you can't just look at the word in isolation and know what part of speech it is. And this is one of the things that's a little bit challenging for students. So one thing I discovered was a little template process where you can kind of test your word and see if it's, you know, a verb. If you put it in here, I blank, or these three options. Yesterday he blanked. Tomorrow he blanks. Uh, today he blanks. Tomorrow he will blank. And that is very helpful because then if it fits in there and it makes a complete sentence, then you can be confident that when the student is writing that, he'll be able to market what it is, strong verb or quality adjective, with pretty good independence and be correct most of the time. For an adjective, it's a little easier. An adjective almost always can go between the and a noun. So if your word fits in that space and is an 
and, and makes sense, at least grammatical sense, maybe not literary sense, then that's, that's an adjective. So the big pen, the happy pen, the monstrous pen, the magical pen, the shimmering green pen, any of those. So then when you need to find an adjective, you kind of look for one that goes in between the and then the thing you're talking about in your story, in your article. So that way the kids can do the test. They'll write a word like remarkable and ask me, is it a verb or an adjective? I do the test. Yesterday, he remarkable. Today, he remarkable. Tomorrow, he will remarkable. Nope, don't think so. The remarkable pet. Yes, okay. So now it's clear that word, which they know is, is a good word. Right? They know that. But now they know it's also an adjective because it fits in that spot. That's a very helpful thing I learned years ago. If you have a word that doesn't fit in either place, well, you probably have a noun, although I'm sure there are exceptions. This is English. Don't be legalistic. I would think this would kind of come up around when you introduce the number four ing sentence opener and you're trying to differentiate between a participle and a flat-out verb that modifies whatever's coming after it or before it. We do have to stop here because we're out of time for today. But because we don't want to leave you hanging too long, we'll go ahead and post the rest of the content later this week. Thanks so much for joining us. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, you can subscribe to this podcast in iTunes or Stitcher, or just visit us each week at iew.com slash podcast. Until then, on behalf of Andrew Poudois and the team at IEW, I thank you for the privilege of allowing us to partner with you on this educational journey toward better listening, speaking, reading, writing, and thinking.